0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another ICM and NEXT collaboration podcast. My name is Rahul Costa-Pinto. I'm an adult intensivist at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and an ESICM NEXT committee member. Joining me today is Dr. Kate Brown, paediatric intensive care specialist at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and Professor Robert Tasker, founding chair of neurocritical care at Boston Children's Hospital, and Editor-in-Chief of Paediatric Critical Care Medicine. We'll be talking today about their recent ICM publication, a narrative review entitled, The Brain in Paediatric Critical Care, Unique Aspects of Assessment, Monitoring, Investigations and Follow-up. Kate and Robert, welcome to the program.
1: Welcome.
2: Thanks so much for, um, for inviting us to make the podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you for joining. So firstly, I think congratulations on this state-of-the-art paper on paediatric neurocritical care. I'd encourage everyone listening to this podcast to read the paper in full in the May edition of Intensive Care Medicine. But with both of you here today, I thought I'd focus in on just a few of the really interesting concepts, at least to me as an adult intensivist, um, that you've discussed in this paper on paediatric critical care. So my first question to both of you is essentially about the epidemiology. And you state in the paper that primary neurologic disorders comprise up to 16% of pediatric ICU admissions. So what I wanted to know is, what are the most common neurologic presentations to PICUs, and are there clear underlying risk factors for increased morbidity with these children and neonates?
2: Robert, do you wanna kick off um, with some of the the, the diagnoses there?
1: Sure, thank you. Um, Thank you, Rahul. Um, We're getting to know what the epidemiology is from uh, a few large studies. And um, there are large studies from the United States that will be coming along. Almost half of the neuro ICU population in pediatrics is going to be neurosurgical perioperative care, tumors, hydrocephalus, uh, AV malformations, and and a number of other conditions. Um, Thankfully, infection, meningitis, encephalitis, is becoming less of an issue. Immunization has had a a huge impact. Uh, The same with traumatic brain injury. Severe TBI is about six per hundred thousand child population and stroke is much less than that. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- those are probably uh, the most common causes. Uh, neuro-oncology, um, it, you know, it, it, it all very much depends on the center that you're working at, but sort of nationally, those would be uh, the broad brush, big numbers.
2: Yeah, I think there's um, kind of in addition to those populations that, that Robert's just discussed, um, there are also children where they may not present with a, a definite diagnosis of brain injury, but they are at very high risk of um, developing or, or manifesting a brain injury soon or after admission or during their admission. And these are, for example, children who have um, cardiac arrest, either prior to or during the intensive care stay. And that's um, a kind of issue that particularly affects the patients that I look after, who are the, the cardiac patients, um, and then the patients who 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 have very severe hypoxic respiratory failure, such as... Um, the a persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn or something like this where they've been referred for ECMO, extracorporeal life support. So that's another population where whilst they may not arrive with that label of brain injury, um, we in the bedside, you're always worried that they may have it or they may develop it. Um, and that's that's kind of become an, an, an important subset of this of this patient group as well.
0: In in your paper, you mentioned, you know, in the title looking at unique aspects of assessment. Now, there are a number of screening neurological assessment tools that you use in PICU, such as the pediatric modified Glasgow Coma Scale and the Serial Neurological Assessment in Pediatrics or SNAP. But what are some of the challenges of utilizing these standardized tools across your diverse pediatric populations from neonate to the teenager?
2: Well, one of the big issues in um, pediatric intensive care is the population is so diverse Um, And that's in terms of um, the age range. So you're dealing with um, newborn babies right the way up to teenagers. And so that's spanning this whole range of developmental milestones. In the younger children, obviously there may be like non-verbal children who don't communicate um, even at the best of times. And then if you, kind of throw in on top of that the kind of um, manifestations of some of the underlying conditions that children have um, that may affect their development um, at baseline and then even more so when they're critically ill, they may be encephalopathic. Um, You can have a population that's extremely difficult to assess and then clearly, in an intensive care setting, when you're delivering um, treatments like a ventilator, ET tube, lines, etc., um, all ICU patients can be, you know, uncooperative. Children and very young children, you know, bless them—they don't have a clue what's going on. That they they will try and, um, you know, take lines out. This kind of thing. So. These children are always um, sedated, um, and that the there'll be neuroprotective measures for the ones with known brain injury. So, these are some of the challenges we face with clinical assessment. Robert may have comments to add to that. I expect.
1: No, no I'd I'd agree with everything that uh, Kate said. You know, the GCS was originally described in adults, validated in adults. We don't don't have similar studies of of that sort of scale in pediatrics. The adult field uh, has also got the four score, um, which some pediatricians on the intensive care unit are using. Matt Kirshen, who's one of the uh, authors uh, of the paper in ICM, uh, produced the SNAP Uh, score from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which gets around this whole issue of neurodevelopmental disorders uh, or children with sort of a pre-morbid condition and the range in developmental milestones that some children have met. So um, that score has been validated uh, it's still in, in its infancy in that there hasn't been, or, or as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been large sort of uptake of using the score, but uh, it's a beautiful score, uh, easy to use. It's been validated in the nursing environment on the ICU. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're at the start. And, um, uh, you know, as Kate has pointed out, the idea is to try and identify a child that is having a problem or the child uh, who's got a change in mental state, all very difficult things uh, to sort out, which is why the paper also includes uh, monitoring details that go beyond the clinical assessments, but the clinical assessment is vitally important.
0: I wanted to, I was fascinated to read about um, the use of neuromonitoring in, in your PICUs. And I'd like to just ask a couple of questions relating to that. The first one is: you know, you, you describe continuous EEG monitoring as the standard of care in high-resource PICUs. What is the evidence for continuous EEG monitoring uh, in your pediatric populations compared with? intermittent EEGs or serial clinical assessments? And for which patients do you think continuous EEG is indicated?
2: Sure. Um, I think, I mean, we have to acknowledge that whilst continuous EEG might be kind of an ideal and and is, is widely used standard of care in certain units, that, that is not the case everywhere. Um, and, I mean, there are a number of reasons for that, being including resources, access, but also um, the evidence base for this is, I mean, you've got to acknowledge that the, there are not the randomized studies to show that this is a definitely carries an outcome benefit. Um, it, it may help us to pick up seizures and help us to kind of treat them more promptly. But um, it's true to say that we're lacking um, definitive evidence as to benefits. So um, I think continuous EG can be useful, particularly say in high-risk neonates who are, I, are, are either seizing or at high risk of seizing say neonates with, um, who's severely ill with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, something like this, um, <clears throat> or where the patient is um, say an, a patient with seizure, seizure disorder epilepsy where the team is struggling to control the seizures. Um, I don't know Robert, do you want to add anything to those comments?
1: Yes, thank you, uh, Kate. Uh, it's probably worth acknowledging that uh, the clinical neurophysiology uh, societies uh, do have guidelines on uh, use of serial EEG and continuous EEG uh, in children and in uh, infants. And Cecil Hahn was one of the authors, and. Uh, uh, He's involved in EEG research, and this is certainly uh, an ideal that we're trying to follow. I think Kate has pointed out uh, the key populations. Uh, you know, the comatose patient, um, who one doesn't really know what's going on, uh, the patient with super refractory status epilepticus, and uh, not only to um, Identify the condition, but also to titrate continuous infusions of medication and uh, anesthesia type drugs so that we're giving the minimum dose necessary to produce a particular endpoint that we're after, whether it's cessation of discharges or induction of birth suppression. So, typically, those are the most common uses. Um, There are instances of using it in the ECMO uh, population and identifying discharges. Lots and lots of publications in that area. Lots and lots of publications in patients with status epilepticus. Um, And the Toronto uh, paper was probably uh, the biggest one that was published in Brain that uh, found an association between epochs of around eight to 15 minutes of continuous discharges and uh, the association with outcome. So, um, you know, that's that's where we are at the moment. It's a limited resource. Uh, A number of units tell me that they're not able to start continuous EEG in the middle of the night. Um, And so, you know, it is is what it is. we certainly need more research and that in part was the purpose of that discussion in the paper uh, we have to go beyond the clinical monitoring to some other form of monitoring and electrophysiology uh, seems to be the obvious one so i guess
0: i guess on a similar note um, it was interesting reading about near infrared spectroscopy and i was surprised to to, to, to read in the paper that up to 87% of institutions in North America um, use NERS. What are the indications, Robert, for measuring cerebral regional tissue oxygenation? And how are these results generally interpreted and acted, acted upon um, in North American PICUs? Uh,
1: so I, I think this is predominantly a cardiac phenomenon or um, sort of a practice in infants. I wonder if Kate might want to talk from the cardiac perspective about NEARS.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, Robert's right to say that this is quite, is used probably the, the, the largest experiences with the children who are having heart surgery and um, I think the kind of take up of NEARS in the paediatric cardiac patients has come somewhat because it's been used in the operating room as, a, as a, an additional monitoring device so that the, um, during open heart surgery where, um, you know, that the circulation is stopped, the child's in bypass, or indeed they're using deep hypothermic circulatory arrest. Um, it's been used to monitor um, the brain as an additional modality to kind of flag up when there might be something going wrong um, based on kind of sudden changes and drops in the saturation. Sometimes focal changes are seen. And so that kind of practice in the OR has, has moved kind of into the intensive care unit um, and in in many units, and as as Rahul as you said, it's it, and we pointed that out in the paper. It's used a lot in North American units. It is used also in, in outside of North America. Um, we certainly use NIRS in the intensive care unit postoperatively, in particularly in high risk children, um, and it's not only being used specifically to look at the brain it also helps you with um, monitoring the kind of as an additional modality looking at at trends in cardiac output um, where the kind of drops in cardiac output themselves can also be linked to um, periods of low brain perfusion and even they can if untreated they can end in a cardiac arrest So um, the kind of experience with NIRS has been to develop various kind of guidelines about looking for for adverse trends and particular thresholds, which we allude to in the paper in, in one of the tables, just to help people to kind of know when to take action. Um, I think it's again true to say that, in terms of like randomized studies to say, is this in the end leading to improved outcomes? Um, those data are, are thin on the ground. Um, so, we're looking at um, some good observational studies linking changes with, for example, as I've mentioned, adverse events, cardiac arrest, low output states, which then have those events then have uh, knock-on effects for for the brain.
0: Thanks for that. I guess as a a final question now, um, the last part of your paper focuses on follow-up of these patients. And it seems that neurodevelopmental follow-up programs uh, are an important aspect of ongoing care for PICU survivors. Now I acknowledge that this might be a a difficult question to answer, uh, but what do you see as some of the ideal characteristics of a neurodevelopmental follow-up program? And what do you see as some of the the inherent challenges in setting up such a program?
2: Robert, why don't you kick off with this one?
1: Thank you, Rahul. Um, You know, this this is a, a, a difficult area Um, because it makes assumptions about uh, the context and healthcare system. Obviously, any child that has been through uh, the ICU environment uh, deserves close attention to morbidities that occur uh, as a consequence of the ICU and may not be apparent until some time after the ICU. And the question is, who's best placed to uh, do that work and what is the best environment for that? So uh, I think as we were writing this paper, we were certainly aware that there were differences in healthcare models uh, that were occurring around the world. So, um, you know, in the UK UK type system uh, of healthcare, you would imagine connection with community paediatricians, neurodevelopmental specialists. And depending upon the area uh, that these patients have been managed, whether it's cardiac ICU, general ICU, neurosurgical ICU, or sepsis, uh, whether a neurologist is involved or um, cardiac specialist, it it really depends on on the environment. But I think the point is that... um, we're patently aware that uh, patients and young children have problems after the ICU. So how do how do we capture them, and how do we make sure that the child and the family get the support uh, that they require? And you know, this this could extend into consequences on their schooling, uh, etc. So um, you know, this is uh, unique compared with. Uh, the adult ICU practice is my, my understanding. Uh, so, um, you know, what, what I'm used to is referring these patients to the appropriate specialist. But there is a move that uh, the ICU should be doing its own follow-up. And um, I wonder if Kate would, would like to tell us about the cardiac neurodevelopmental uh, type approach that mm-hmm. she's interested in.
2: Yeah, so um, there are a few good models of um, kind of holistic follow up where all the children who meet a certain threshold of risk are followed over time using kind of standardised approaches. Um, And these have kind of picked up some of the methods that are used um, in neonatal intensive care where you have <clears throat> very preterm babies who are who are at high risk. Um, and there's some a couple of you know very good examples from the Netherlands and um, also from Canada where um, in particular they followed very high risk children such as ECMO patients and children who've had cardiac arrest and then um, shown how if you, Um, see children over time they may develop issues and deficits which were not evident early on so the ideal is a program that's able or a pathway or a method that's able to follow children up over really quite a long period of time as they grow up um, and then detect issues that they have and then help them to access developmental support, help, physio, OT, school help, whatever it is they need. Now, this is hard to achieve, it's complicated, it's resource intensive. And it's been shown to work in, in as some of the high risk cardiac kids, single ventricle programs, and these kind of ECMO or congenital diaphragmatic hernia. But to kind of bring that into the children who are of a more medium risk is more challenging because there's many more of those children. So I think this is something for us in PICU and working with colleagues to work on over the next five to 10 years to see if we can't um, increase the reach of neurodevelopmental follow-up for, the, for these kids. I think it's the next kind of level really for, for care. Um, of, of the brain and of the child, of developing children after intensive care in the next five to ten years.
1: I mean Rahul, I think that this is where you know you started talking about the epidemiology. And uh, certainly in, in the UK we're talking about um, about 100 per 100,000 child population. Who requires intensive care Um, because the intensive care model is different in the United States that's close to 180 per 100,000 so you know you can do the maths if you multiply that up to the child population and you're trying to identify a follow-up program that captures all of those it it, it's huge so um, there are potentially different solutions. One is to identify the high risk ones before they leave the ICU. Um, One is to improve uh, some form of of capturing patients uh, who might be uh, developing problems that one wasn't aware of at the time that they left the ICU or the hospital. So uh, it's a challenge. And uh, I think one of of the great things about the paper in intensive care medicine and the opportunity uh, for writing that is that we can just lay this all out for the community to think about and have a debate. I
0: think your paper uh, will hopefully generate some very robust um, and interesting discussion. Robert and Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating podcast, I think, to accompany an an excellent and very interesting uh, paper in intensive care medicine. And I encourage, uh, again, everyone who's listened to this podcast today uh, to read the paper in full in the May edition of ICM. Robert and Kate, thank you again.
2: Thanks so much.